Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I'm a little bit croaky this morning, so see how I make it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Imagine with me, you can close your eyes if that helps you. Imagine a void, just a heaving, watery darkness and nothing else. There are no forms, no shapes, no time to count or measure, no order at all, just a great incoherent chaos reaching out for all eternity. But as you consider this vast, watery emptiness, you start to sense something else, a presence, something warm and personal hovering over all the chaos, brooding over it like a mother hen over her chicks, like an imperceptible vibration, something, someone, bent with intense purpose over the heaving waters. And then suddenly, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and then a voice calling out from beyond all eternity, a voice clear and commanding, echoing from beyond time and space. Let there be light. And all the watery deep is lit up before the purest, whitest light imaginable. Then the voice divides the waters, separates them above and below. The voice divides the waters to create dry land. And out of the waters it calls forth Swarms of living sea creatures. What I've just described for you is, of course, the creation story from Genesis chapter 1, the very first verses in the whole Bible. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Here at the beginning of all things, we find water and the Spirit. All the world we see and know, even we ourselves, were born first of water and the Spirit. As the theologian and Bible scholar Peter Lightheart says in his book called Baptism, creation is never without water. Water is essential to make all things live and grow. The rain falls from heaven to water the earth. The dew refreshes the earth every morning. 70% of our earth is covered by oceans, and the rest of the world is crisscrossed with rivers and streams, dotted by lakes. Under the earth are vast, unexplored networks of subterranean channels and rivers. All living things need water to survive, and we ourselves are, as we hear sometimes, mostly made of water. 
Lightheart writes, and I'm going to read a little section here. Is there anything so refreshing as a warm bath, a dip in the pool, a glass of ice water on a sweltering afternoon? Rhyme glorifies spider webs, and snow sparkles the dingiest landscape. Does anything smell of life like soil soaked with spring showers or the dank, dark sea? Arid lands are barren wombs without the seed of rain, and the water cycle regulates the weather. The living world is a partnership between biological molecules and water. God demonstrates his goodness with the lavish gift of water. And that's the end of Lightheart's quote. Even human birth comes through water. Babies are incubated and grow in the water of their mother's womb. Then the mother's water breaks, and the baby is preceded into the world by a gush of water. Creation itself was born of water and the Spirit, and creation is never without water. In the Bible, too, water is a picture of God's creating and sustaining work. God creates his own people, the people of Israel, by bringing them through the water of the Red Sea during the exodus from Egypt, and later by bringing them through the Jordan River into the promised land. He brings forth water from a rock to quench his people's thirst in the wilderness. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet, God promises to pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And then he says, I will pour my spirit upon your descendants. They shall spring up like grass amid waters, like willows by flowing streams. Naaman the leper is healed in the water of the Jordan River. And later, Jesus himself is baptized in the same Jordan River. Now, if I can call us out of this little meditation on water want to invite us to a very different place, Jerusalem in the first century, to Nicodemus, venturing out at nighttime to visit Jesus. But as we already heard in the gospel reading, water and the Spirit will play an important role in their conversation. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was about as elite a person as there was in first century Palestine, highly educated, a member of a devout religious sect, the Pharisees, and what's more, a ruler of the people. He was, as I remember Graham Cole said it once, a reverend professor doctor. That's going to be important in a few minutes. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. It's not spelled out in the story, but the implication is Nicodemus didn't want people to know he was going to meet Jesus. He had too much at stake. He had climbed pretty high in the social standing of his day. He didn't want to risk that by associating with such a controversial figure as Jesus. So he snuck out at nighttime under the cover of darkness. And Nicodemus says to Jesus very handsomely, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Seems like a respectful beginning, doesn't it? 
the kind of thing an educated, urbane leader might say to this new upstart rabbi. Very suave, respectful, but kind of noncommittal too. This is where the conversation takes a turn. We don't really know how Nicodemus had planned for the conversation to go, whether he might have had other questions for Jesus. Because right away, Jesus takes the conversation in a new and unexpected direction. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's a surprising response. (laughs) On face value, it does not really seem to follow from what Nicodemus had said. Nicodemus said, we know you are from God because only someone from God could perform these miracles. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? Nicodemus is being respectful. He's being deferential. And Jesus hits him with this odd sort of non sequitur. Jesus is being direct, yes, but he's also getting right to the heart of the situation. Let's look briefly at the last three verses of the previous chapter. John 2, 23 to 25, and if you don't have a Bible, I'll just read them to you. Now, while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. People were seeing the miracles and getting excited. It even says they were believing in his name, which sounds good. But the gospel tells us it's still a shallow kind of belief. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew they were excited about miracles, but that they didn't yet understand what he was all about or what he would require of them. So in the very next verses, when Nicodemus says, we know you are from God because of these miracles, Jesus knows what is in his heart, and Jesus responds accordingly. Nicodemus thinks he understands who Jesus is because of the signs and the miracles. He feels safe and secure in his position of authority. But with one word, Jesus throws away all Nicodemus' status and all his cleverness. If you want any part of God's kingdom, Jesus says, you must become a new person. The person you are is not enough. You must be born again. Nicodemus is flummoxed by this. How can this be, he asks. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I think we're almost supposed to laugh at this. He's missing the point almost comically. He is thinking in laughably literal terms, thinking only of physical birth, when Jesus clearly means something more. So Jesus explains in a little more detail. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Here we have it again, water and the Spirit. Jesus is alluding directly to the creation story from Genesis 1, when the Spirit hovered above the waters. He's saying, There must be a new creation, 
a new birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, he says, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Nicodemus's first birth as a baby was like all of our births, a birth into sin, into death and the flesh. But this new birth Jesus is talking about is a birth into life and the spirit. The church father, St. Augustine, commenting on this passage, wrote that our first birth is from Adam and Eve, our earthly parents. And so it's a birth into their sin and into their death. The second birth is from God and the church, God our father and the church our mother, a birth into spirit and life. Nicodemus doesn't understand how it works. How can there be a second birth, a birth of the spirit? But Jesus says in verse 7, don't be surprised by this. And he gives Nicodemus a powerful example from our own experience. The wind blows wherever it pleases, he says. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying, see, we often see the effects of something, in this case, the wind, without understanding how it works. And John, the author of this gospel, is having a little fun here because the same Greek word means both wind and spirit. So in the gospel, it's a little pun. And of course, the spirit is often associated with wind in the Bible. Remember the wind in Ezekiel's story of the dry bones that blew on the bones so that they lived again. Or the sound like the rushing of a violent wind when the spirit came on the apostles at Pentecost. Well, poor Nicodemus is still stumped by all of this. How can this be, he says. And Jesus gently chastises him. You are Israel's teacher, he says. And do you not understand these things? Remember, Nicodemus is a reverend professor doctor, as Dr. Cole said. (laughs) A Pharisee, a teacher of the people. And what did he teach? What was all his learning in? The Old Testament. The law of Moses and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is hinted at all through the Old Testament. And the images Jesus is drawing from are all in there. Of all people, Nicodemus should get it. Or at least, if he can't quite put it all together, he should be able to recognize the illusions Jesus is making. Instead, he's asking these childish questions. Now, as you may have heard before, the character of Nicodemus in John's gospel is being set up as a deliberate contrast to the person we'll meet in the very next chapter, the Samaritan woman. As both a woman and as a Samaritan, she's the last person who ought to get it. And yet she runs back to tell her friends that she thinks she may have found the Christ. The man who had all the training, all the cleverness, and the great learning is hopelessly confused. The woman, meanwhile, from the hated Samaritan people with a dubious past takes Jesus at his word. And this brings us to the crux, I think, of the Nicodemus story. All of Nicodemus's great learning did not help him understand. Why not? Because he was thinking according to the flesh. 
Remember his question? How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Nicodemus was thinking according to human reason. All his great learning was only a distraction, a source of pride and status, an impediment to true understanding. Jesus was right. He must be born again. He must become a new kind of person, a new creation. He doesn't have to understand it all first. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. In fact, it will never make perfect sense to his purely human reason. Instead, he must believe first. He must take Jesus at his word. Only then will he begin to understand how all the law and the prophets really do speak of Jesus. How the same spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation hovers over the waters of baptism today. And just as creation itself was born of water and the spirit, so we are born again of water and the spirit today. Jesus says in verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus is saying, these things I'm saying to you are really very simple and you don't understand. How will you understand heavenly things? It's a fair question. How can we understand heavenly things? in all our foolishness, in all our fleshliness, our sin, and our selfishness. We don't have to pull ourselves up into heaven to grasp these heavenly truths. Jesus has come down to us. And we, as we look to him and believe in him, we have eternal life. Look in verse 13. The one who went up into heaven is the same one who came down from heaven. Only because God has come down from heaven to where we are can we look to him and believe. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said of this passage, even though I cannot understand with my reason what it is to be born again, yet I will believe it as the truth that we must be born again of water and the Holy Spirit. And when we are born again, God opens our eyes by his spirit to understand those heavenly things, the mysteries of heaven. Imagine with me again, if you will. You've been kept awake all night in prayer and fasting. And just as the sun comes up and you hear the first cock crow, You're let out with the others, out into the chilly morning, to the side of a flowing stream. There you're stripped naked. Then the bishop comes, and he's holding a jug of oil, the oil of the Spirit. He asks you, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And you say, I renounce them. And the bishop pours the oil over you, running down over your body, and says, let every evil spirit depart from you. Then you're led down into the water by a priest. And the priest asks you, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And you say, I believe. And the priest takes hold of your head and pushes you down into the water as if to drown you. 
and then pulls you back up again. Then the priest asks, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose on the third day living from the dead and descended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the one coming to judge the living and the dead? And you gasp out, I believe. And again, you're pushed down under the water and brought back up again. And finally, the priest asks, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? I believe, you say, and a third time you're pushed down under the water and pulled back up again. And then you're led up out of the water. You're given new clothes and taken into the church where you're given bread and wine. What I've just described for you is a baptism rite from the early church as it was written down by an early Christian writer, Hippolytus of Rome in the third century. And I've borrowed the idea of presenting it that way from a modern writer, the Australian theologian, Ben Myers. We cannot enter into God's kingdom unless we are first born again. Our first birth into the sin and death of this world is not enough. We must be born again. We must be drowned in the water of baptism and raised by the Spirit to new life. And this, of course, is wonderful news. It means we don't have to try to make ourselves good. We don't have to strain to make a godly and righteous life out of our fleshly and sinful selves. In baptism, we are reborn, made anew, this time without sin or the curse of death. All we have to do is humble ourselves and believe God's promise. Baptism is not an empty rite or a nice symbol. Baptism kills us and then makes us alive again in Christ. Praise be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.